Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to The Rest is History. As you know, we like to take um, suggestions from our listeners. And the other day, I had a text message from somebody I hadn't seen for many years who was at university with me, a man called John Tinker. Now, whereas I went into the the world of history to serve the public, John Tinker went into the city and made an enormous amount of money. And from his baronial pile, he issued me with the following suggestion. He said it would be fascinating to do a podcast about a history of weather, or rather, the impact of the weather upon history. And for once, he was right. It is a good idea, and that's what Tom Holland and I are going to do. We're going to do the top ten ways, or at least our top ten ways, that the weather has changed the course of history. Tom, are you looking forward to this? Are you excited? I am, and I've been very prepped by... um, I've just been downstairs, and my younger daughter is in a furious debate with her friends about whether to go to a festival in Sussex. And the reason that there's a debate is that it is pissing down as yeah. we sit here and we've just we've just finished recording um episode on the western front with gary sheffield lots of talk about the mud of passchendaele song, yeah. and i think well, that, sort of... that they could go and experience something akin to that if they go down to sussex tonight so i'm very it's excited we're, we're, yeah it is character building so I, I i said yeah absolutely you should go um but of course we we um it's not just weather is it we're also going to talk about climate and there is a difference between the two what's the what is it i've, I've actually never bothered to inform myself to educate myself as the young people say about this what is the difference in weather and climate uh, weather happens day to day climate happens over the sweep of the, the centuries and the millennia okay so that's why it's All climate right. change rather than weather change so we're actually doing both aren't we in this podcast? yeah we are because i so know we're what we're going to be talking about yeah and there's both there's weather here and climate okay so so on the topic so, of climate can i kick off with mine i think you should kick off because i bet you're going to do something very old are you? <laughs> it's, yeah it's incredibly old go on so so my nomination is the ice age okay well that's Pretty obvious. Um, but, um, you've gone for the big one, basically. I have. Well, yeah. we're, and you know that we're still living in the ice age. Is that that I did not know? Yeah, we're living in the ice age because there is ice on the uh, caps, the polar caps. Right. That's a very broad definition of the ice age, though. Isn't it, it isn't because uh, up until about two and a half million years ago, there was no ice on the ice that, caps. That I did not know. So That's, the last I've learned the two la- things already. Do you Amazing. know when the last? Do you know when the last ice age was before that? I bet you don't, uh, but I do. No. 
That's no, why I've asked you. Don't. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it was in the late, it was in the Permian period, which is the period just before the dinosaurs. As a friend of mine once said to me, you don't really know that. You just read that in a book. <laughs> I do know that. You know I love dinosaurs. You know I yeah. know that. You know yeah. I know that. It was called, it was called the Karoo Ice Age, but we, so we are living in the, in the, um, uh, Quaternary Ice Age. Okay. Um, and, um, it, so it's basically, it's been going on for two and a half million years and the ice caps, they, they, uh, the, the glaciation comes and it goes. And what I guess what we tend to think of as the Ice Age is known by geologists and climatologists as the last glacial maximum, by which they mean that the, that the ice sheets have kind of descended to their lowest level uh, and then they kind of slowly retreat. And so basically uh, about 11,700 years ago, that's when it ended. And, and that's when a period called the Holocene, which means the Holy New Period, begins. So the whole of history occupies the Holocene. The period right. after the Ice Age, so this is what we're in now, yeah, exactly. So, so I think that that obviously that's absolutely huge, and it's been focused for me by a trip that I've just done around Middle England. This very glamorous your, holiday of yours, yes, where you went to yes, Leicester, your stamping ground. Uh, but one of the places I went to, which is such a wonderful place, is um, it's literally on the the Derbyshire Nottinghamshire border. A place called Creswell Crags. Have you, have you ever been? Never. Been? It's Never. really wonderful. So it's 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 kind of mining land so kind of potmark with mines and things but this is um it's a kind of series of it's it's a ravine with caves on either side and there's a lake there now which got blocked off by the duke of portland uh, because he was threatened with someone was going to build a railway through it so he made a lake so that right. they, they couldn't build it which i think hst protesters might want to yeah. i mean it's a kind yeah. of radical solution um and these caves um they contain the old britain's only known cave art Mm. And uh, a wonderful kind of fragment of uh, of bone on which someone carved a horse about kind of thirteen thousand years ago. So it's wow. the oldest piece of British art, but it's it's incredibly atmospheric because this was about uh, I guess about ten miles from the um, the Great Wall of Ice. So it's like uh, Game of Thrones. You know, your your that wall of ice was somewhere kind of North Nottinghamshire, and Creswell Crags was about the as far as you could get. Back in those days, and yeah. and not kind of run into this wall of ice. So hold on, there were people, and there was the wall of ice. Is that correct? So and there's a wall of the ice. There's a wall of ice, and then basically there's tundra just south of that. Yeah. And every summer, people would would make the journey up north. And Creswell Crag seems to have been about as far north as they would go, and they would shelter in the ca- take shelter in the caves. And I guess they'd use it because this. Um, great kind of troops of deer and whatever would be funneled through this or they could trap them there or they could kind of drive them off the cliffs or whatever um so it was a way of of um finding food even in the kind of absolute teeth of this uh, horrific arctic weather um and then gradually it retreats and the ice the, the glaciers retreat and um slowly uh Yorkshire emerges and then right. Scotland and then yeah. Iceland, Iceland and um and civilization begins a great chorus of complaint emerging out <laughs> yes. of the emerging slow from wine, the snow. slowly emerging, <laughs> oh, with huge apologies to everyone north yeah. of Nottinghamshire. There, that was Dominic's <laughs> joke, not mine. Um, so, so, so that basically makes British history possible because right. without the end of the Ice Age, it simply you know, people wouldn't be able to live here permanently. Um, but also, it, it has a kind of measurable impact, say, further south where the ice hasn't reached. So, in the Middle East, the Near East, where civilization begins. It's around the time that that the the, the um, last glacial period ends 
that you start to get the very, very beginnings of urban civilization. So within about uh, 200 years of the, the, the end of the Ice Age in Jericho, you've got about a thousand people living in a kind of proto-urban settlement. So and that's the oldest city in yeah, pretty much. Jericho. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's continuously inhabited right the way through. Um, so, uh, so, so anyway, that's mine. That's my first. So hold on. So people, just a quick question: Are people living in Jericho, sort of, in other words, within a few generations of the people doing the horse at um, the crags? Yeah, about about a thousand years. A thousand years. Yeah, between the two things. Yeah. So they're quite. That's quite close, isn't it? In the yeah. in the. Yeah, that's an extraordinary thought when you think of the beginnings. Of yeah, and in the in the Near East, there are these kind of settlements that keep kind of popping up, and then you have um, a, kind of cold periods intervene. So there's one called the Younger Dryas, which sounds right. like something out of Narnia or something. It does, but it's it's, it's a like, kind of yeah. it's a, it's a cold spell that lasts for about fifteen hundred years, and so the, the 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 incipient process of urbanization in the Near East retreats, and then the Younger Dryas ends, the Ice Age ends, and boom, we're off. On the long road to iPhones and podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> I'd, I'd never thought of this podcast as the summit of civilization and human achievement, but now, of course, I do. Yeah. Um, okay, I buy that. That I mean, I, no one could possibly argue with that, could they? I, I actually feel slightly humiliated because you've chosen the Ice Age, and my first one is the Little Ice Age. I, that's not a, <laughs> a metaphor for adorable. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yes, have you read the book called? Global Crisis by somebody called Jeffrey Parker. Very How, great historian. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, amazing book. It's about 7,000 pages long. Full of horrible stuff about China. Yeah, it's all about the 17th century. So we've done a 17th century podcast. We've touched on the 17th century many times. And this book is about the 17th century as a global phenomenon. So the age of the Thirty Years' War and the British Civil Wars and so on, but all across the world. And basically, a lot of historians are now fascinated by the issue of climate and climate change. And Jeffrey Parker, who was always a historian, I think, of war, really, of sort of early modern warfare, he's now looked at this and he says, you know, the data is absolutely clear. In the course of the Little Ice Age, so in the course of roughly the 17th century, temperatures dropped by about two degrees. And do you know one of the reasons why some people think this is? No. You don't know any of the reasons? No. That's great. Well, one of them is the Spanish conquest of the Americas. So because it's sort of decimated agriculture, in some way that I don't comprehend because I know nothing of science, um, that affected the climate and there was generally a climate drop. Is there more smelting? Um, there may well be. I mean, S- yeah, I suppose. Would, well, hold on. Smelting. Would smelting not be? Um, well, I, I know in, in the, the early Roman period, there's a lot yeah. of smelting <laughs> and this this impacts on uh, on ice cores in Greenland. But wouldn't that heat things up? I don't know. Okay, well, this is top quality podcasting. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to what we do know about. So we know that there's a crisis that begins in the 1610s. So that's round about the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War in Germany. So you've got snow in Japan. You have uh, a huge drought in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you have rivers drying up in the New World. And basically, harvests failing and all this sort of carry on. And there are some amazing stories. So people, you can walk across the Bosphorus on the ice. It's so cold from um, Constantinople, so you can walk from Europe to Asia, which is a cool thing to do without using a bridge. And they have ice fairs, don't they, on the Thames? Yeah, and there's, uh, later on, obviously, the frost fairs on the Thames. So this continues, and the frost fairs on the Thames, I think, are sort of 1660s-ish or so. Um, people do bear baiting on the Thames and things, and, I don't know, play football and buy 
snacks and stuff and dance and all these kinds of things. But there's sort of horrific consequences. So thousands upon thousands of people, I mean, starve to death. And in Germany in particular, you see the impact of the weather because harvest failures, you've got the 30 Years' War, massive hailstorms, and, and this is the year of the witch craze. So people are looking for somebody to blame for these climactic events that they can't, you know, they don't have the scientific tools to understand. And they, they basically say, well, it must be caused by, you know, that old woman at number 33. She's obviously a witch and so on and so forth. And the stats are actually, I mean, we're usually quite a stat-free podcast. But so in China, Poland, Russia and the Ottoman Empire, the population falls by about a third during this period. In, the, in Germany, it falls by half half and that's not all the 30 years war a lot of it is the is the climate stuff and you're right when you mentioned china so it's a huge thing in china you get the collapse of the ming dynasty and you have all kinds of famine and floods and the the qing or the manchu dynasty they come along so this is a real pivot in world yeah. history and it, and it and it's not just because of technology and religion and stuff it's also because of the weather well i, re- I remember in that um uh, jeffrey parker book that he quotes a poll that was taken 5 years after the Second World War, in which Germans are asked, yes. what is the worst political disaster that's ever afflicted Germany? And rather than picking the Second World War or the Nazis, they go the Thirty Years' War, because I guess more people yeah. did die more, more proportionately. Died. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's amazing, isn't it? That th- we should do something on the Thirty Years' War, because it's so little known so in English-speaking countries. Yeah. And just so bizarre, you know, Swedish armies. But I'm slightly nervous about doing it, because it's so complicated, and I can never remember who's fighting who. And Yeah, but I don't think anybody else can either. So you're fine. I know, but you're meant to be the expert. So <laughs> I suppose. I mean, so. if we do but a podcast, let me say we got we've, no we've idea what's that. going on. <laughs> we've never adopted that principle in this in this podcast. So I don't think people are going to expect expertise now. Anyway, give us one of your your next example. Okay, so we've had the ice age. We've had the little ice age. Yeah, uh, and now I think it's time for a, a cooling. So I'm I'm going for the late antique cooling. Cooling. Yeah. Okay. Very Which begins good. in the middle of the sixth century AD. Is this related to earthquakes and stuff? It's probably related to the explosion, three explosions of volcanoes in succession. Okay. So 536, 539, 540, and 547. I hope people are taking notes. And um, 536, Procopius, the uh, great historian and prurient yeah. obsessive who writes absolute yeah. filth. The secret about- history. Justinian and Theodora. And if and you geese. haven't read it, it's fine. You know, I don't want to put it, get an E on our podcast rating, so I'm not going to describe what the geese do. But, <laughs> but if you're interested, do read it. Anyway, so, so Procopius has, he's, he's writing about the, the, uh, the Gothic wars in Italy when the, 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 the Byzantines, the Romans, are trying to recapture Italy from the Goths. And he says that, that in this year, the, the sun, the light, um, it gave no heat. And there's another guy, Cassiodorus, who says that the, the light of the sun is a kind of bluish quality, that the seasons get blurred, that you get uh, snow and ice in, in, in the summer. Um, in uh, Irish annals, you get a, accounts of famine. In, again, in China, you, you, horrible kind of details about the suffering, the famine, the, the, the awful experience of the people there. Um, and... There's a sense in which there's this kind of dust veil, and it seems to have led to a kind of century almost, or maybe two centuries of very cool temperatures, maybe going down by two or three degrees. And all of this is incredibly contested and, and complex because it's the interface between history, climatology, all kinds of things. But 
if you assume um, a drop in two to three degrees, then that implies famine. Yeah. And basically, this is a period where everybody is just above the subsistence level. And if the harvests fail even minutely, then people start to starve. And it's in that context that the, the, the two centuries that follow, say, 550, are incredibly convulsive. And in, in, the, in the Mediterranean world, the Near Eastern world, basically, this is the marking point between the end of antiquity and what will become the medieval world. These are like the Byzantine Dark Ages. Yeah, so the, so, the, so the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, it, it kind of implodes, it, it retrenches, but it's, it's an absolute kind of shrunken parody of itself it, when it emerges from this period. The Sasanian Empire, the Persian Empire collapses completely. You have the emergence of Islam, the, the caliphate. Um, in, uh, in Scandinavia, uh, the latest estimate is that 50% of the population starves to death. And you'll know all the um, the stories of Ragnarok, uh, the yeah. Wolf Age, the Ice Age. Um, so Neil Price, you know, brilliant historian of the Viking period, argues that um, what's called the Thimble Winter is um, is a folk memory of this period, and that the the, the kind of the convulsion, the, the 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 devastation that it brings to Scandinavia is essentially what sets in train what will become the Viking Age. Um, and uh, in distant um, Mexico. Teotihuacan, which you remember in the Aztec episode, um, the Aztec, yes. yeah. yeah, there's this great, great abandoned city, the kind of the, the Rome of Central America that the Aztec kings are going to on pilgrimage. You know, this this is a, a vast city, a vast city. It's kind of you know on the scale of of, of Constantinople, but it implodes completely from 550 through the, the decades that follow. And so again, people think that perhaps this is due to this this global cooling. So uh, at the moment, we're you know we're obviously um, it, the focus is on global warming, yeah. but but the experience of late antiquity suggests that cooling as well can have this completely devastating impact. That's pretty good. That's that gave us the Vikings, Islam, the end yeah. of Me- the Mexican Rome, yeah. the implosion of the real Roman Empire. Yes, and so so there is a um, you know historians are understandably nervous about these kind of catch-all explanations, yeah. and so. There's a reluctance to say that they, they're all necessarily pulled together because in a way it explains everything. So perhaps it explains nothing. But I think there is, um, you know, there is, a, the, 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 there is a kind of growing consensus that the, the climatological evidence does suggest that there really was a kind of process of global cooling in this period. And therefore uh, that puts, you know, it, it kind of provides an interesting slant on records of, of well, famine, but also, of course, intriguingly plague. And that's, uh, again, an open question whether there's a, there's, there's a connection between this drop in temperatures and the emergence yeah. of plague in, in the sixth century. But what just occurs to me, Tom, given what you were saying, is that, um, of course, the weather matters more further back in history you go. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't matter now, but obviously your point about living just above the subsistence level and reliance on the harvest yeah. means that the weather looms so large in yeah. you know late antique history or ancient history or medieval history, even early modern, uh, much more so than it does now, actually. The weather matters less now, probably, ironically, given that we're in a period of global heating, that it or has mattered in recent years less than probably ever before in human history. Yeah, and the irony is, is that the reason for that is industrialization that's enabled us to escape. Well, for only temporarily, though. Yeah, yeah. and um, so... You know, Kind of right. Moebius strip of uh, climatological paradox. This is all very depressing. Um, yeah, so cheer us just, up. Uh, well, I'm going to do something really. I can't really compete with uh, the origins of Islam and the Vikings. 
um, with, with next something that explains both. So I'm going to go a bit obscure. Are you familiar with the um, the Great Northern War, Tom? Um, remind me. So um, this is another war that nobody knows about in this sort of English speaking world. But it's a it's a well, I was about to say it's a great war. I mean, it is a great war. Um, it's a very it's a fascinating war. So it's the war for control of the kind of northern world and for the Baltic between oh, Peter two the great. empires. Peter the Great? Peter the Great? Peter the Great, yeah. Yes. Peter the Great, Tsar of Russia, and Charles the Twelfth, who is a you know, huge figure, head of the King of Sweden, head of the Swedish Empire. Byron wrote um, a poem about him. Did he? Yeah. That I did not know. Of course, a great Byron a great Byron man. So um they're fighting this massive war, and, and it's gonna win kind of winner takes all who's going to be the big northern or northeastern power. And um, that starts in 1700. And at about that point, um, you get another of these periods of cooling. And you have what's called the Great Frost of 1709. So they've been fighting for quite a, a while. The Great Frost happens. Now, this is, for, for reasons that we don't really understand, temperatures in Western Europe drop to about minus 15 degrees centigrade Celsius. So the soil freezes and trees explode because their sap is frozen and people on Royal Navy ships die because they're cold and the fish freeze in the rivers and all these sort of details. Now, Charles Twelfth has launched his great gamble to destroy Russian power and to cement Sweden as the sort of imperial power in the north. So he's been fighting against somebody called Augustus the Strong in great name. Poland. Crazy name, crazy and, um, guy. <laughs> well, strong name, strong guy, I think, is is more accurate. Um, so he's been fighting Augustus. Is strong. he strong? I don't know. I just know. It's, I, d I don't really know. I'm not familiar with um, Augustus. Does he go around work. lifting up heavy clocks? I like to think he... Well, he's Polish, so I don't know what he would be lifting. What do the Polish poles... Uh, probably, I, I see them as a clock-making people, early modern <laughs> poles. I don't know. Anyway, we're just wittering. Um, Charles decides he's going to invade Russia at the start of 1708, so very bad timing. Peter the Great, it's the first great instance really in Russian history of that thing that becomes so familiar, the Russians withdrawing and doing their scorched earth territory. So Peter the Great withdraws, Charles XII keeps going, and he goes on and on into Russia, and he, he decides he's going to winter in the Ukraine, um, which makes sense because Ukraine is the breadbasket of the kind of Russian empire, and he's got allies there who are Cossacks, and he thinks he can resume the campaign in the spring of 1709. But the Great Frost intervenes. So his army is massively reduced by hunger and by famine and so on, um, probably about half its size. The Cossacks don't turn up, or a lot of them don't turn up, because they themselves are debilitated by the frost and they've got no food and all these kinds of things. So Charles is um, short of supplies and he attacks a place called Poltava, very famous battle in Russian and Swedish history, again, basically unknown in Anglophone countries. And the Russians win this crushing crushing victory they basically break sweden's power once so now we think of sweden as this sort of country of very pious you know um wild swimming ikea mongering social democrats but it absolutely wasn't like that in the early 18th century and it's because of that because of the great frost and the battle of poltava because their power was completely utterly broken charles does this incredible thing which um it's very 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 game of thrones like behavior he doesn't go back to Sweden. He goes south and he spends five years in the Ottoman Empire. Sort mm. of unexpected. I, yeah, it is unexpected. Um, Why does he do that? To be honest, I, I, I don't really know. Because I think it's, it's the least 
It's the last oh, thing Peter yeah. the Great would expect him to do, and so therefore the that's thing. why I'll do it. I'll take an extended city break <laughs> for five years in Constantinople. Um, I mean, who wouldn't want to? Yeah, well, so the, uh, Byron, the Byron poem, Mazeppa, is set in the aftermath of the Battle of Pultoa. All right, and what happens in the poem? Uh, Mazeppa is a, I think, a Cossack. He is a Cossack, yeah. He's a Cossack, and he describes how he, uh, I think he had slept with somebody's wife, and the outraged husband strips him naked and ties him onto the back of a horse and the horse and then then gallops across the steps okay well he lives to oh. tell the tale obviously but i think yeah. and i think that's basically it and it's a so metaphor it's funny, for the romantic funny. imagination that's very good maybe we should yeah. do a podcast about byron tommy you'd love that maybe we should yes. and maybe byron will turn up later in the podcast oh that's exciting who knows tantalizing us yeah well i um, have a, so we've done four i sh- shall i just quickly do mine i think you do have to do another one before the break otherwise yeah okay so up. i'll do it very quickly so um Obviously, a famous way in which the weather can affect the course of history is uh, winds shattering fleets. Spanish Armada. So Spanish Armada is the famous one. Uh, the winds that blow uh, and, and destroy much of Xerxes' fleet in 480 when he's invading Greece. Yeah. Um, uh, but the one I've gone for is um, the, the two Mongol invasions of Japan launched by Kublai Khan, the great yep. Mongol. You know, the Mongols have conquered much of China. Um, while Kublai Khan is... is um, ruling northern China, his armies are invading Song China in the south. And over the course of his reign, Song China will fall to him. So he'll end up ruling the whole of China. And he has his eyes set on further conquest. So he looks across the sea to Japan and he, he sends a kind of rather kind of, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of like on Twitter, if you get someone say, why can't we be kind to each other? You know that the person who's sending it is about to shout at you for something yeah uh so, well, so if somebody K- says that you know they're just about you to know that try and yes. cancel you for something exactly so kuba khan sends a message saying all countries we think belong to the one family and therefore right. you should join our family and yeah. if you don't you're a warmonger <laughs> right. and the japanese basically say you know piss off so kuba khan said he sends a, a huge fleet from korea which he's conquered yeah the fleet crosses to japan they attack various places and they they the Japanese are completely you know they can't really put up a fight against them because they're op- it's it's actually it's kind of a teeny bit like the Aztecs and the Spanish that the Japanese don't really know what they're facing so are when they, they are the Mongols more technologically advanced they are than? because so the Mongols have explosives so they they probably have cannon and they seem to have um kind of hand grenades that they fire I don't and picture the Mongols with hand grenades so it's say. it's the I think the first use of hand grenades outside China Wow. Um, where, whereas the Japanese, I mean, you know, they, it's all samurai, so they're all yeah. terrifying. They got very I mean, fancy not the kind swords. of people you want to take on, but they, they're kind of very much in the mode of you start a battle by firing an arrow, right. which, which the Mongols find hilarious. So basically, it's looking really bad for Japan. And then yeah. you get this great typhoon, which sweeps down and sh- destroys the fleet. And this typhoon is called Kamikaze. So hmm. the Kamikaze destroys the Mongol fleet. Kublai Khan, you know, he's he's not going to be put off by this. So he sends emissaries to, to the Japanese and the Japanese chop off their heads. So this okay. doesn't go down well. So yep. Kublai Khan is determined. To, he's going to have another crack. And by this point, he's conquered the south of China. He's conquered the Song China. So he can launch a pincer attack. He can launch a fleet from, from Korea and from southern China. So that's what he does. The fleet's rendezvous. They're about to attack China, Japan, when again, whoosh, the kamikaze hits. Is that is that the noise of a kamikaze wind? Ooh. 
<laughs> something like that. I mean, that's, that's my impression that's of Tarzan. That's all right. I, I, yeah. I, I, it's uh, top quality, uh, top quality sound effects here. Um, so, so J- Japan is saved. Um, you know, China never, never conquers Japan. And obviously that, so, so there's been debate about whether this is true or whether oh. the Japanese kind of invented it to what, show, now, to after show that five has- minutes, after five minutes going through it, only now you tell me it may not be true. But Dominic, you know everything in ancient or medieval history. People it's always made pop, up, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it all made up, or is it? Yeah. But but and the reason why people have thought it may not be true is the uses, the propagandistic uses to which it's put in the Second World War, because famously um, the pilots who yes, of course, you know, launched, pilots. You know, suicide yeah. pilots call themselves kamikazes, and Hirohito, the emperor, kind of invokes this idea of the uh, the typhoons coming to the rescue. And the reason why people have thought that it, it may not be true is that typhoons on this scale are not a feature of the waters of Japan. But pr- I'm relieved to say that uh, geologists have recently done a study and doing something geological, which I don't understand. Right. They have proved that actually back in the 13th century, Japan was much more prone to typhoons than now. And so therefore, it probably did happen. Could, of course, have been Godzilla. Um, that's, that's a, yes. I mean, that's uh, an alternative theory. So, yeah. so I think that's good. So That is good. I, that's I like five, that. isn't it? So like we've done that. five. We're halfway through. Um, yeah. So uh, don't go away because we've got lots more yeah. weather themed we'll historical. We'll have more of this scientific expertise <laughs> that we're bringing to this topic. Possibly sound effects. <laughs> yeah. So don't go. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History, to our weather-themed episode. We're looking at the top 10 times that the weather, or indeed the climate, influenced the course of history. Um, I've just done my third, so Dominic, it's your turn. It what, is my what, turn. What are you, uh, what's, what's your, um, your nomination? Well, just before I tell you, I'll just say I'm still reading from the fact that you ended the, the, last, the first half of the episode by saying to the audience, don't go. <laughs> Which, <laughs> that's sort of, I don't think we should conduct our podcast with that level of sort of desperation please don't go <laughs> um, anyway i don't no, think no, anyone no, no. will go when they listen to this because this is so such good it's stuff. so gripping so we did an episode about the french revolution and um we talked briefly about the causes of the french revolution and, and one thing that we probably didn't spend enough time on 
was the impact of the weather. So certainly when I was studying the French Revolution for A-level many years ago, the weather was barely mentioned at all. I mean, people sort of said offhand, oh, you know, bad harvests, rain and stuff like that. But but actually, this is a genuinely fascinating story because we were saying earlier that the the weather seems to matter less as you come forward in history because people aren't living at a subsistence level. But this is an instance where the weather really does matter and has massive political consequences. So there'd been a volcanic eruption in Iceland in um, 1785, I think. So what is it with these Icelandic volcanoes? Anyway, the there's an explosion um, and then you have cooling in the second half of the 1780s. So an issue that we've talked about before, cooling. And um, in the spring and summer of 1788, you get a massive drought um, across France. You get a huge crop failure. So the harvest is about half its usual level. And then you get this colossal hailstorm. And I mean a massive, massive hailstorm that kind of... A massive one. Is that yeah, what you mean? A massive. I think that's a technical term used by hailstorm. Um, <laughs> hailstormologists. Hailstormologists. A monster, hailstorm. a monster hailstorm. You get shed loads of snow. That's also a technical term. <laughs> um, and then, of course, what, the one thing you always get with snow, this is also great scientific <laughs> knowledge, uh, you get floods because it melts. So all these French farmlands are, are flooded. So they had this sort of... The I was Thomas Schaffernacker of late 18th century history. <laughs> yeah. I was about to say it's a perfect storm. Um, <laughs> but, but maybe that would be one weather metaphor too many. Um, so, yeah, this is all awful and um just this sort of combination of things that and so by 1789 um bread prices have gone through the roof because there's so many shortages so if you're a french peasant or indeed rather if you're a french sort of worker you are spending about half of your income on bread before 1789 and then when you get to the summer of 1789 you're spending about 90 percent of your income um, on bread and do you know when prices reach their highest level um, Tom, a year and a day after the massive, massive hailstorm. Do you know when 14th that would be? 14th of July? The 14th of July, 1789, Ooh. the day of the storm in the Bastille. Now, I've read that fact and it almost seems too good. You know, it seems like one of those facts that's just it's too great perfect. Fact, though. And I wonder whether it can really be true. But I'm going to, for the purposes of this podcast, let's pretend yeah. it's definitely true. And that's the hail. So this massive, massive hailstorm gave you the reign of terror, the guillotine, Nelson on the bridge of Trafalgar. Napoleon, the Wellington boot, and so much more. International human rights. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So much else. The tricolor flag, the Marseillaise. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, continuing the, the, the French history theme. Yeah. I think we need a tub-thumping English victory over France. We always do. There's no podcast of which that's not true. So um, I'm going to... 1415, Battle of Agincourt. Very popular subjects in French schools. <laughs> Um, so um, this is the second, this is Hundred Years' War Part Two, Henry V, um, busy in giddy minds with foreign troubles. Uh, August of, the, of 1415, he lands in France to claim the French throne. Doesn't go brilliantly well. He kind of wastes time besieging uh, Harfleur Harbour in, uh, in Normandy. Once more into the breach. Once more into the breach. 22nd December, September it falls. Um, it's not much to show for the enormous amount of money and investment that uh, that Henry's put in. So he decides that he's he's going to kind of try and um, fly the flag by marching from Harfleur to Calais, which England holds and has captured in the, in in Hundred Years' War Round One. So eighth of October he leaves for Calais, and 
he marches through Normandy up towards Calais and it's very wet and miserable and he starts to get shadowed by the French. He reaches the Seine, all the bridges have gone. He has to kind of march down the Seine to, to find a crossing point, does so, gets on the other side and the French are drawing in. And 25th of October, he basically, 24th of October, he basically gets cornered by a village called Agincourt and the French vastly outnumber the English and by quite how much is very, very contested, but um, let's say by lots. <laughs> but that's the <laughs> level of precision that we've yes. had so far in this. Uh, well, we can't, we, you, you'll know that this, I mean, this is hugely debated. No, nobody ever well, knows these the, stats, the do they? They're all made up, aren't yeah. they, with the sources and wildly um, exaggerated. But I think, I think we can safely say the English are outnumbered. Um, they're demoralised, they're wet, they're miserable, they don't really have many supplies. Um, the French are much better equipped. And so there is a, a kind of universal assumption that they're going to win the battle. And as in the Shakespeare play, the French spend the night kind of gambling and uh, deciding who's going to lay claim to the ransom of Henry. Um, and it rains. So it's a miserable night. And the, the, the terrain that lies between the English and the French lines has recently been ploughed. And so the rain falls on this, um, this ploughed soil. And in the morning, the, um, uh, the knights on horseback charge across this and it's a, a, a disaster because uh, they all just sink into the mud and the horse's hooves churn it up even worse than it had been before. So that by the time the, uh, the men, French men-at-arms come to attack the English line, Basically, it, they're, you know, they're sinking up to it, their knees, perhaps up to their waist. If you get hit by an arrow and the English archers are kind of raining, you know, rain of death down on them, you'll drown because you'll just slump into the mud. Yeah. And, you know, it's like the Battle of Passchendaele. Um, you're, well, you're so heavy, aren't you? With all that you're so heavy. I mean, you're, you're so heavy. And, and so basically, it's just kind of massive pile up and you will, suffer, you know, you drown in the mud or you suffocate uh, and you've got the English arrows raining down on you and it's all an absolute disaster and the English win. Don't, don't the English pile in? Well, I say the English, but aren't there a lot of Welsh? I mean, a lot of Welsh, yeah. Fluellen, Fluellen, yeah. Fluellen in, in Henry V. All that, all that play. banter about a leak. Um, yes. In the, in. Excite, and exciting to learn from, from a Welsh fan of the podcast that the, the Welsh for banter is banter. Yeah. A so word. That you can you can see why he's applying that word to this podcast, can't you? Absolutely. Um, um, uh, anyway, so, so, so basically the English win. Uh, but they behave we, badly, we, though, don't they, at the end? Don't they go around sort of stabbing daggers yeah, through they try, they, they well, the French try and attack the baggage train, right? Um, so that's poor form, very poor form. So the Battle of Agincourt, um, it, I mean, in the long run, obviously, you know, the English lose the Hundred Years' War because of Joan of Arc yeah. and the fact that uh, France is just much bigger. Um, yeah. But Agincourt is what enables Henry to come back in overwhelming force and conquer ba basically half of France, have himself crowned as king of you know his, his son will be. Um, king of both uh, France and England, all goes wrong. But it is the cause of Shakespeare's play. <laughs> yes. I mean, I actually, think, I actually think Henry V is a terrible king. Vastly overrated, yet yeah, terrible. I mean, it's, it, it's all... He's it's very Christian, Tommy. You should love him. It's, it's a bloody murderous, squalid business. Yeah, but you could say that about so many things, couldn't you? You could say that about Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar. You could, yes, and I... I you probably, I probably would. 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 You? I probably would. Yeah. But uh, I think I think Agincourt is a, a kind of um, a, a squalid business. But um, you know, it, it it gives us Shakespeare's play with the soaring poetry, uh, and it wouldn't have happened without the weather. Okay, so, yeah, so yeah. You don't need to persuade. I'll me. give you that. That's a good one. So my next one is another um, French-based, war-based 
one. It's kind of um, some uh, listeners may sort of have seen this coming, but I don't think we should ever be afraid of the obvious. We never have been so far. Um, so it's D-Day. And it's a weather forecast, actually, rather than the weather itself. So um, it's a, it's a. Some people will know this story because um, uh, a very great actor and, and writer, David Haig, did a play about it. I think called Pressure, and it's the story of a man called um, Brute Captain James Stagg. So he's basically an army um, or military meteorologist, and and basically what they they know they want to attack France in 1944. They're going to do these landings, and they have to pick the right date to do it and they basically need a whole combination of very complicated things so for the air operations they need clear skies and they need a full moon for the sea operations they need not can't be windy and the seas have obviously have to be reasonably calm and for the ground troops ideally they'll land at low tide because then all the german obstacles that are on the beach that you'll have seen in photos the sort of strange devices that the germans have um they will be exposed you know they won't be covered by water and so they'll be easier to to deal with and so you need a combination of these things and they have these weather forecasters who say basically the ideal window is between the 5th and the 7th of june um 1944 but but when you know they have to pick a day and um group captain stag and his team are sort of looking at the weather and famously the weather in the channel is incredibly hard to predict and and incredibly kind of variable and can turn on a sixpence from blue sunny skies to kind of storms and stuff um so they persuade eisenhower to postpone the operation um on the 4th of june to postpone it by 24 hours but he can't keep putting it off because if you don't do it now you'll have to wait for another two weeks and the germans will probably find out you can only delude the germans for so long so there's this amazing moment late on the evening of the 4th of june Eisenhower is in this house in Port outside Portsmouth, and there's kind of wind howling outside. It's very kind of Byronic weather, the the rain lashing at the windows, and basically, Stag goes in and he says it's not going to be ideal weather um, on Tuesday the sixth of June, but it's probably the best chance we'll have, and I reckon you should go for it. And there's this wonderful moment where Eisenhower kind of looks over at this little figure hunched in a, an armchair and says, you know. What do you think? And the figure says, I think we should go for it. And that figure is, do you know who that figure is, Tom? Albert Einstein. <laughs> it's Monty. It's Monty. Uh, Monty, yes. It's Monty. So Montgomery says, I think we should go for it. And they do go for it. Now, they could easily not have gone for it. They could have been conservative and said, let's delay it by two weeks. And and if they had done, you know what would have happened? They'd have been in the middle of a massive storm because on the 19th of June, there was a colossal storm hit the channel. So who knows what would have happened? Probably thousands of people would have died. Probably they'd have gone for it and rather than put it off again, and thousands of people would have died who otherwise lived. So um, Stag's weather forecast saved the day, and you know we should have a statue in Whitehall to the weather forecasters of Britain. Also, um, most of I mean, all, all the other ones have been about terrible things that happen and people dying in you know, multitudes, and yeah. that's one that saved lives. So, yeah. You know, it's a kind of it's an interesting of of the maxim that uh, awful things tend to make history. Yes, that's true. So that's bad true. weather makes history. Good weather tends not to. I don't think we've got. Yeah, we don't really have examples of. I've my my last example is not a good weather example at all. Is yours? Uh, well, well, good things come from it. Okay. So I said. Ooh, I said. I, so, so I said that. Um, 
uh, we'd have some more Byron. Yeah. So I'm excited so, about it. So this is the famous um, year without a summer, which was 1816. And again, yeah. it's a kind of cooling. It's caused by a volcano. In this case, um, a massive explosion in Indonesia, East, East uh, Dutch East Indies as was, um, which happens in the spring of 1815. It erupts for a week and um, it's... <laughs> so another great sound yeah, effect. Yeah. So, so I've done, I've, I've done the typhoon. That's my impression of Mount Tambora exploding. And okay. it's, um, you know, the impact of the, the, the kind of ash layer, it's like a kind of a, a, a brief winter, a global winter and the ash dims the sun and it, the effects endure into 1816. And we've talked about subsistence. 1816 is the last year that people in Paris starve because the harvest has failed. Uh, and you get terrible conditions as well. Say in Germany, um, the Rhine, it's, it's said, is, um, is rotten with corpses. People are, are dying. But also, uh, it's not just um, humans who are dying of starvation. So also are horses. And in Germany, well, nobody think of the horses. Well, no one think of the horses, and and that means that basically transport's wiped out. Okay, you can't ride, you can't hitch them to wagons yeah. or to uh, carriages or whatever. So there is um, a baron, uh, Karl Dreis, who thinks um, he's an inventor, mm -hmm. and so he he invented to get around this problem. He invents um, a Laufmaschine, a running machine, which is the prototype of the bicycle. Oh, that's a good fact. So, like that. so that's one positive that comes out of this, out of yeah. the, 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 um, the year without a summer. The other is the, the making of a, a great section of English literature, because that summer, Lord Byron has left England under very dark circumstances. He's basically been cancelled by a censorious English press and public because um, of a marital scandal involving incest and uh, rumours of sodomy. So he's, he sails abroad and he takes up residence by Lake Geneva in a villa um, uh, on the shores of Lake Geneva. And he is joined there by another poet, much less well-known than Byron, Percy Bysshe Shelley. And Shelley also has a complicated love life. So he's gone with his, um, uh, with his wife, common-law wife, uh, Mary Shelley, daughter of, of uh, uh, Mary Wollstonecroft, the great feminist. Mm -hmm. And um, her sister, her half-sister, Claire Claremont, whom Byron promptly gets pregnant. Uh, Byron is also there with his physician, Dr. Polidori. So they're all shacked up in this house. They can't go outside because it's miserable weather. Um, the most famous product of this is Frankenstein which is a novel that um, in which the weather gets progressively worse and worse and worse. So yeah. to begin with, um, Frankenstein, who creates this monster, is uh, living in good weather. Of course, it's a storm, lightning, that brings the creature to life. And by the end of the book, he's being chased by, uh, by, by the monster across the Arctic wastes. So you get so some getting, to, co yeah, getting colder and colder. They've gone back to the Ice Age. Um, Byron tells a story about a vampire, uh, which then gets written up by Dr. Polidori and mm -hmm. basically establishes the prototype of the aristocratic vampire that will feed into Dracula. And so you've got Frankenstein and, and Dracula basically kind of being born here. You also have a completely terrifying poem that Byron writes about the experience of the darkness, that when the Soviet and British scientists presented their joint paper on um, 
the way in which nuclear winters would be one of the, the results of, of a nuclear exchange. They put this poem by Byron and a reworking of it by Pushkin in Russian at the head of the paper. Oh, very good. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, so I'll, I'll just, I'll, it's, yeah, it's a really, really chilling poem. Uh, I mean, I'd urge anyone who hasn't read it to, to read it because it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, but I'll just read the opening. I had a dream, which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless. And the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day. And men forgot their passions in the dread of this, their desolation. And all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light. And so it goes on. That is chilling as you... And uh, it ends up, it ends up with, with uh, the last humans killing each other. Wow. That's very good. I like that. So on that cheery note, that's my... Yeah. So the weather gave us Frankenstein, vampires... And, and nuclear winters, yeah. And bicycles. and bicycles. And bicycles. So there's an upside. All right. Well, talking of horror stories, um, I've got a great... Um, can I mean, I, I've shown immense self-restraint in not doing this first, or indeed every time. Um, this, it's this the winter of discontent. James Gallagher. I knew you'd go for this. <laughs> this is the of so, course. Um, people who are... Overseas listeners will be bewildered by this. Um, in Richard III, Shakespeare's play... Richard says, you know, now is the winter of our discontent. And the, 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 the phrase sort of has stuck in the, in the English imagination. And um, at the end of the 1970s, uh, there had been a Labour government since 1974, and they had basically, they were battling inflation, and they had managed to keep inflation down or attempted to reduce inflation by a series of deals with Britain's trade unions of so it was a slight myth that Britain's trade unions are more powerful than other people's trade unions. I think part of the problem was there were just more of them. So they're very competitive, always trying to outdo each other in deals for their members. And um, at the end of uh, 1978, the relationship between the government and the unions kind of breaks down because James Callaghan, he's postponed. He could have called a general election, but he doesn't want to. He wants to wait till 1979 because he wants to show the public, the voters, that he can work with the unions and force, basically force them to accept a 5% limit on pay increases, which will help him fight inflation. So he can then say to the public, well, you don't need this awful woman, Margaret Thatcher, who's very extreme because I can do the job, you know, much more consensually. And, um, you know, you, you know, I can get it done and you don't need her. But. First of all, the union members refused to accept it. But secondly, that coincides with this period of awful weather. So the worst winter in Britain since 1962. You get massive snowdrifts across the country. You get roads closed. You get people freezing to death in their cars and so on. You have the, And this coincides with, as some of our older listeners will remember, a series of crippling strikes. So it starts with a lorry dr- driver's strike kind of over Christmas. Um, and then you have um, the roads are obviously blocked by snow, but you have rail strike you know the railways shut down you have shops running out of groceries and sort of you know images that we are perhaps now a tiny bit more familiar with because of the kind of panic buying during the pandemic but at the time are very shocking to people the fact that um your local corner shop has run out of bread because of a strike or something now you know the weather plays a huge part in this but what compounds this is that at precisely this point callahan who's been quite a popular prime minister till now goes off to a um, a summit in, of all places, Guadeloupe. So he flies off to Guadeloupe, and he had, and there are all these pictures coming back to um, 
to Britain of him on the beach, kind of drinking out of coconuts Hawaiian with Jimmy shirt. Carter. He wears a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, there's a scene. Does he? There's, they're, they're all in these, te- well, they're sort of in safari suit type arrangements because yeah. it's the seventies. So that's yeah. him. I think there's Helmut Schmidt. He's a quite a sort of, he likes, a, he likes a good time. Jimmy Carter, of course, doesn't like a good time. So he's probably quite miserable. But I think maybe uh, Valerie Giscard d'Estaing might be there. I can't remember. He, like, anyway, he likes a diamond, doesn't he? He, do- <laughs> he does like a diamond. Yeah, he likes an African diamond. So anyway, they're all there. They're having a whale of a time in Guadeloupe. Um, Callahan then is he's going to go home, but he says, "Well, I won't go home straight away because I'm facing, you know, it's all pretty grim at home with his unions and stuff." So um, the ideal thing would be for it to have a few days break in Barbados before I come home. <laughs> which he does now he can reasonably say prime ministers are allowed a holiday i've been working incredibly hard we've had the international monetary fund crisis of 1976 you know i need a couple of days and it really is just a couple of days to recharge but of course the fleet street photographers are there and they get these fantastic photos of him kind of lurking like a great (laughs) mammoth or something in the shallows inspecting (laughs) girls in bikinis on the beaches of Barbados, while meanwhile at home, there's no trains, everything is frozen, it's already missing. And the bodies aren't being buried, are they? Because the grave diggers are on screen. Well, that's, yeah, that's about to come, actually. Oh, so I'm that, sorry, I've, I've, no, no, I've no. ruined it for you. Um, no, 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 I mean, lots of people will, be, will, be, will have been thinking exactly that. So then he comes home and gives this disastrous press conference at the airport. He's really tanned, he's wearing a sort of summer suit. <laughs> and uh, he says, um, oh, I don't know what you're, you know, looking at it from outside, I think things in Britain are probably fine. I don't know what you're complaining about. And that's what the, we get the Sun's famous headline, Crisis, what crisis? Um, Jaunty Jim, I think. Which he never said, it. did he? Which he never he never says. Yeah, Jaunty Jim comes home and blames the press or something. Yeah. And this is sort of very tone deaf from somebody who was always up to that point a master of communications. And then the weather gets worse rather than better. There's more snow, there's more freezing um, fog and all this stuff. More people go out and strike. That's when you get the... the um, all the schools are shut, um, and you get the uh, the grave diggers in Liverpool going on strike. So the bodies, people's bodies, are put in refrigerated warehouses, and you get all these. I think the Daily Mail has a headline: uh, "We can't even bury our dead, or they won't let us bury our dead, or something." So, um, and people's bins don't get collected. I also oh, think yes, that's the, the key huge thing: huge piles in Leicester Square. Yeah, I mean, these are the most famous photos of the winter of discontent. And there's this sort of, um, there's always. There's this whole school of thought with politics that basically it's all about bins and bin collections. Yeah. And that most people don't care about anything political. I think there's a degree of truth in this. But if their bins aren't collected, they're absolutely outraged. And the government that doesn't collect your bins will suffer for it. And, of course, Callahan's government does suffer for it. They they would have done far better, I think, in the general election. They might not have won it, but they'd have done far better had it not been for the bins, the graves, the snow, the crisis, what crisis, and all that sort of stuff. And, of course, the Conservatives then basically da- dine out on the winter of discontent for what, the next... I mean, they were still using it in 1997. They were st- unbelievably, they were still using it in their ads against Tony Blair. If Tony Blair gets in, you're, of course, a big Tony Blair man. Well, I suppose it's really until Black Wednesday. Yeah. Well, which I mean, which then, just... I mean, because the winter of discontent is the, is the disaster that yeah. shadows Labour. And then Black Wednesday is is the disaster that shadows the Tories. Exactly, exactly so. So in, and even in 1997, the Tories are still saying, if Labour get back in, they won't bury your dead, they won't empty your bins, and it'll snow all the time. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think by that point, as you say, yeah. Black Wednesday has intervened, and so that narrative has lost its force. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that, that's, that's, um, that's a great note on which to end. Um, it's really good. It's so which good is to have you talking about Sunny Jim. 
So what do you, yeah, it's always good to talk about Tim Gallagher at the end of the podcast. So um, which is your favourite of these, of your own weather choices, Tom? You could choose well, one. I th- I, well, I, having just come back from Creswell Crags, I, the, they have this amazing video in the visitor centre. I know that the phrase visitor centre strikes a yeah. chill in any, but this is a great visitor centre. Really, little fragments of, of uh, snow hair that they used. They used the guts of the snow hair to sew their uh, furs and things. What's, but they, what's, hold on, snow hair? What's snow hair? Arctic hair, you know. White oh, right, like a, and you, yeah, okay, and you kind yeah. of capture them and you, you make yeah. needles out of them and, and, and thread and stuff. Yeah. Um, but they have, they have a kind of wonderful video where they show you, uh, the Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire badlands in a uh, kind of like 120,000 years ago. Derbyshire. And there are hippos wandering around. So they had hippos. Then they have uh, showed about 60,000 years ago when there are Neanderthals there and there are hyenas. Then they've got the kind of Game of Thrones one that I was talking about. Where yeah. you've got you've got Homo sapiens turning up and uh, doing this cave art, and then you've got Victorians wandering around, prospecting, and it's looking all kind of gorgeous and beautiful. That sounds good. As visitor centres go, it's a really it's it's a wonderful place. It's very atmospheric, really really interesting, and uh, basically it's where British art begins. Okay, you've persuaded so, me. Yeah, I'm, so, I should, I should. and yours, I guess, is Winter of Discontent. Uh, you know what? I'm going to actually going to pick um, the Great Northern War. It's the most romantic sounding. I like an Eastern European story. I like um, stuff I don't really know about, um, uh, which is why I pick it in podcasts. Uh, and also, I just think the fact that he didn't go home for five years. Yeah, that's so a great. It's a great so detail. Bizarre. But the Great Northern War. Yeah, I mean that's it's so much more. It's basically the, it's 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 a video game, isn't it? Masquerading as history or something. Yeah, or like a fantasy novel. I mean, it's, well, actually, both of us, you know, because I've got a Great Wall of Ice and you've got the Great Northern War. I mean, there's a yeah. certain synergy there. Yeah, everything comes back to Game of Thrones or Tolkien, doesn't it, basically, in history. On that note. Yes. So we shall leave you. That were, Thanks to uh, my old mucker, John Tinker, for the suggestion. Um, did you did you take that up because he's very rich and you're hoping for a slap-up meal? Some sort of I, – I, just to be absolutely clear for other listeners, I think this is a very good opportunity. I would happily take bribes to suggest <laughs> for topics. Uh, you can contact me on Twitter. <laughs> Um, I, you know, we could have an auction. Do you know what? We could have an auction, Tom. We have a charity auction. Charity auction? Or... Yeah. Well, we'll, no, actually, let's just have an auction. <laughs> yeah, let's just have an auction. Well, I think... Uh, let's just sell ourselves completely. I, I'm very tempted to do the charity auction. Because yeah, you've got know, your appeal. Yes. The Tom I've got, I've got benefit. my benefit. I've got my benefit. So I'm very tempted to do that. But I, I'm just... Sl- my only anxiety is if we get something like... I don't know, um, the politics of Catalonia in 1830 or something. I think we should do it. I think we should throw this open to the listeners. And okay. if it is the politics of Catalonia in 1830, <laughs> you know, I think we should. <laughs> okay, so we'll do that it for the certainly be the topic of, That can certainly be the title of the podcast, whether we, we stick to the subject. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, so, so should we do that then? Let's do that. Yeah, why not? Okay, for the benefit. Let's we'll auction it. it. Okay, so if you want us to do a particular topic and you're prepared to pay a fat sum of money towards our benefit appeal, which is going towards the homeless and to the Yazidi refugees, so sensational uh, cause, let us know. And we okay. should probably try and put this on some kind of official yeah. footage. This, this is probably not a charity commission basis for... Um, <laughs> no. Raising, and I'm raising. afraid that the evidence is now there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. So you heard okay. it here first. Yeah. Um, 
This is the first step in the road that will take Tom Holland to prison for embezzling <laughs> listeners' money. And on that note, uh, we shall see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.